Welcome to the podcast. I'm Bruce Mole from Commonwealth Magazine, inviting you to listen to a new series focused on societal changes wrought by COVID-19. It's produced by our good friends at the Massing Polling Group. Enjoy the show. In early 2020, the future looked bright for the Dream Nail Lounge in Lynn. Yahira Terivio and her staff of aid enjoyed a steady, loyal client base. We were all very excited because there was a lot of opportunity and growth potential. But as we all know now, that excitement couldn't last. Um, the week before it was announced that we were actually closing, I was freaking out. I was very stressed. I wasn't sleeping. I was having like, I wasn't having anxiety attacks, but it was borderline because I couldn't imagine not being able to help people take care of their families. For people who worked in customer-facing jobs, the pandemic struck them the hardest. For those who had the ability to work from home, their daily lives took on a totally different shape. Today, we're going to be talking about remote work, but also about the people who can't work remotely, for whom in-person work was always the only option, and what happens to those business owners and workers if there are massive long-term shifts in where people spend their days, and therefore, their money. I'm Libby Gormley, and this is Mass Reboot, a podcast about restarting Massachusetts after COVID and what we lost along the way. This is episode five, work. Welcome back to Mass Reboot. I'm here again with my co-hosts. Jennifer Smith, hello. And Steve Cazella, hey folks. So we've been building up to this episode for the last few weeks because each of our episodes, art, transportation, housing, and food, depends on where and how people work. This is new territory for all of us. We're navigating a novel public health emergency, and we're at the point now that vaccines are available to everyone in the United States. But there are still a lot of unknowns. New variants and new positive cases are emerging, new mask mandates now. Um, This has a lot of people second-guessing the kind of quick return to old life that we'd all been anticipating. And a big part of what that old life entailed was for office workers working in the office. Jen, Steve, what does work look like for you two? And what do you expect in the coming months? Well, we're going to be talking about education next week. And I am in law school. So my experience has mostly been about being behind a screen rather than in a classroom. But one thing that has taken place during this year for me is working remotely for co-op, which is basically full-time work in these very kind of short chunks. So I'm still remote for one last term. And I've been having kind of the odd experience of popping in and out of office offices while remotely and it's made it kind of hard to you know build bonds with co-workers for instance among other things from a reporting and interviewing perspective for the horse race and now mass reboot it's been remote completely until very recently yeah for me going back to pretty much the beginning back in mid-march of last year it's been almost all remote i've gone in a few days just gone downtown for various specific things um, and each time it's been a complete ghost town Um, The other thing that I've done during the pandemic that I think is typical of a lot of remote workers is just kind of work from different places. You know, sometimes we'd be out at my parents' house or, you know, I'd bring my laptop with if the family wanted to go, you know, be somewhere else for a while just to kind of have a change of scenery. The other thing that worked during the pandemic has meant for me and for the Massing Polling Group is just a lot of surveys about work during COVID. You know, this has been one of our main areas of focus. So we've got a lot of good data and I'm looking forward to kind of diving into some of that during this episode. Excited to get into it. 
let's go to work. When you hear talk about work as it relates to the pandemic, often the conversation is trained on one thing, the massive shift from in-person, in-office work to working from home. But that's just one part of the story. Many jobs couldn't be done remotely. And when the outbreak got serious, those jobs were the first to disappear. The opportunity to work from home has not been equitable. Disparities showed up right away in the very earliest days of the pandemic. Our poll data showed many workers with more education and higher incomes work from home. By late March, an astonishing 87% of workers with advanced degrees reported they'd already worked remotely. For those with no college, that figure was 34%. Others lost paychecks and lost jobs. Service workers like those in restaurants and hospitality felt this acutely when the restaurant closures cost 255,000 people their jobs. And it wasn't just restaurants. We heard from Yahaira Toribio earlier, who owns the Dream Nail Lounge in Lynn. Nail salons were not a pandemic-safe business, and their owners and workers tend to be operating on the margins to begin with. Despite its growth before the pandemic, Dream Nail Lounge was no exception. When the shutdown happened, um, my staff was nervous because they didn't know if they were going to be able to return to work. And a lot of them were contractors. So if they weren't working, they weren't making any money because they're not entitled to unemployment. Now, one thing that must sound familiar at this point in the series is that the way folks were set up before COVID hit had a major impact on how well they were able to weather the pandemic. Yahira's nail salon sits in an area with plenty of drive-by traffic, but less foot traffic. So her struggle in reopening has been welcoming back customers, but with a deeply reduced staff for safety reasons. So we had, where I said before, it was six, six staff members, and when we returned, it was four and then it went down to three. So right now we're like half, half staff. For businesses that depended directly on local foot traffic, there were immediate ripple effects when office workers stopped coming in. Service businesses and hourly workers relied on a steady stream of office workers going to certain places at certain times and doing certain things. Think restaurants and food carts whose customers were suddenly miles away in their homes on Zoom instead of in the office or dry cleaners when remote workers were suddenly leaning into the casual part of business casual, janitors when offices sat empty for months at a time. Shigun Idawu, CEO of the Black Economic Council of Massachusetts, or BECMA, spent the pandemic advocating for this type of business and this type of worker. You know, these folks are not um, in the position they're in because they don't have a good business model. It's just because they, you know, rely on human beings being in front of them. And if we're in our homes for 18 months, that's going to hurt your bottom line. For the white-collar employee, work from home has always been the future that never seemed to arrive. Before the pandemic, about 16% of the total American workforce worked remotely at least part of the time, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. But a much larger portion, around 82%, according to a 2019 LinkedIn survey, wanted to work from home for at least one day a week. Certain workplaces were embracing a shorter work week, but it was sporadic and definitely not the norm. And then, for much of the white-collar workforce, the option of working anywhere else but home pretty much vanished all at once. Offices were suddenly very unsafe, so office workers collected their things and headed home, got set up, and started working again. 
So people, we gave people flexibility to start working remotely prior to a um, company-wide policy being set, but we, I believe it was the second week of March, we really started encouraging almost the whole workforce to work remotely. That's Megan Welford, Director of Strategy, Communications, and Operations at the MITRE Corporation. Before COVID, MITRE had 2,200 employees working in their offices just off Route 3 in Bedford. That's out of their 8,500 total employees worldwide. We never closed. Uh, we stayed open throughout because we do have some um, specialized uh, needs that we have to support our sponsors in certain missions. And so we, we kept some facilities open and moved them to things like shift work in our secure facilities, um, you know, scheduling in our labs. But the overwhelming majority of our workforce, I would say close to 90, 95 percent, was remote by mid-March. The early days of working from home took some getting used to. We've all seen the mishaps that occurred. Kids walking into the video call, pets hogging the screen or laying across the keyboard. But quirks aside, people realized that the widespread remote format worked well. Predictions of declining productivity turned out to be wrong. Now, remote work is here to stay. Employers have seen it be successful and workers have grown used to it. J.D. Cheslov is the president and CEO of the Massachusetts Business Roundtable. Their members include some of the largest employers in Massachusetts. Think banks, tech companies, law firms, universities, and more. So remote work is a big deal for them. Even if they did want employees back in the office, inevitably there will be a competitor to that company who's offering their employees some sort of hybrid environment where they don't have to be in the office five days a week. And what we're finding is that employees are able to say, well, you know, if your expectation is that I'm going to be in the office five days a week, I'm going to go work for a different company who's offering more flexibility. Um, we're hearing that quite a bit now. But the same forces that were reshaping office work were leaving many people behind. Most of those who hadn't shifted to remote work were in one of two realities, starting really early on. They had either lost some or all of their paycheck or they were working in person, risking COVID exposure. So now that it seems like more remote workers will have the option to go back, how many will? There are a lot of surveys of remote workers, and we've conducted a lot of them. The questions vary, the percentages vary, but they all pretty much show the same thing. For many, the old five-day commute is over. Most employees, about I believe it's about 80% of the company, has opted to become a hybrid worker, which provides them with the opportunity to come in uh, regularly during the week, but not every day. Uh, maybe a couple of times a week, maybe for meetings, to connect and collaborate with folks, but not necessarily be in from eight to five, five days a week. Megan's experience matches up with that of the broader Massachusetts white-collar workforce. There's just no evidence that most remote workers are coming back to the office full-time. Even in state government, where things are famously stable, many employees will work in a hybrid format going forward. Things may still change, but at the moment, all momentum is in that direction. There was a perception throughout the pandemic that as vaccines were developed, there would be a fight between workers wanting to stay home and their bosses pressuring them to return to the office. But for the sectors where it works, bosses and workers alike think the hybrid model that Megan Welford described, part-time in-person, part-time remote, is the way to go. A few months ago, J.D. asked Roundtable members a series of questions about their work formats. And one that was really interesting, one finding that was really interesting, 
was that prior to the pandemic, 90% of our members were predominantly in person in an office. During the pandemic, obviously, that completely flipped, um, and nearly all of them were working remotely. What was really interesting was the expectation that post-pandemic, 79% or almost 80% anticipate a hybrid work model. And that is a dramatic shift from the way work was done, um, how and where people worked prior to the pandemic. Part of that shift has to do with competition. If you want your company to have good employees, you have to compete for them. And for roundtable member organizations, negotiations are about a lot more than just salary these days. When employees are coming in and interviewing for jobs, what we're hearing is that it's literally the first question they ask is, what are your expectations around um, around in-office versus remote? And they're really pushing for some sort of a hybrid option. Some roundtable members are noticing a bit of a switch in a longstanding dynamic. As one of our markets said, the, one of our members said, the balance of power has really shifted to the employee. With employees coming in much less than they used to, employers are also now focusing more on employee well-being, both for in-office work and for work at home. Both J.D. and Megan said employers are now much more aware of the home lives their employees are balancing. I think part of it is, honestly, the um, comfort and mental health of the employee. And employers are really um, tuned in and aware to um, the mental health and wellness needs of employees. And part of that is isolation from, you know, and stress and all of those, those things that folks are dealing with as they're wor- working remotely. But part of it, too, is comfort level with asking people to come to work and riding on the T or once they get to the office, do they feel safe? You know, they really are concerned about safety of employees and that, and um, I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon. That's another thing that people can agree on. The ways our society has traditionally designed the workday is often draining and unhealthy for employees, not just the job itself, but the things surrounding it, like commuting. But trade-offs for the well-being of some necessarily impact the financial security of others, Shigun says. Yes, uh, working from home is important for the, uh, the mental health of an employee, for their pockets because of the money that's spent on traveling to and from the office, uh, as well as the personal time spent in traffic um, that where we have all forgotten there's a pandemic and we're, we're back to what it was like before the pandemic. Um, all of that is important and understandable. But at the same time, uh, working from home uh, in large quantities in many areas, downtown uh, included, um, is going to severely harm small business, all small businesses, you know, but black businesses uh, in particular um, who are in uh, who are relying on uh, that foot traffic. That demand for hybrid work flexibility will likely produce consequences. Businesses surrounding a large employer that once relied on the foot traffic it produced will have to adapt. Business districts with office buildings sitting at 30 to 50 percent capacity just will not bring in the same customer base to local restaurants or retail. Shagun notes that the majority of businesses owned and operated by people of color are inherently enterprises that rely on in-person customers. I'll give you uh, an example of one of, of one such business, uh, Soleil Restaurant, um, uh, you know, over in Nubian Square. 
run by a wonderful woman, Cheryl, who has um, just been such an amazing contributor to the community, uh, not just through her business, but in, in, in all other ways. And so her business is over uh, uh, in the first floor of the Bruce Bowling Building, which is where uh, the Boston Public Schools uh, is headquartered. Her business uh, relies on the, you know, several hundred to a thousand folks that go through that building every day. Shigan explained that promises to invest in the Nubian Square area of Roxbury never materialized. As a result, Soleil needs those public school employees as daily customers. That leaves the business vulnerable if, in the future, the BPS workforce based out of the bowling building stays remote to the level we saw during the pandemic. If BPS were to shrink its footprint and say, uh, you know, 50% of folks are gonna work from home and other 50% will come in here, um, it will, it, it will uh, be very harmful, I'll say, to her business. It's unclear just how much of that customer base will stick around, because remote work is likely not going anywhere anytime soon. And as we know from our polling, there were clear socioeconomic educational, and racial splits among who could and couldn't make the shift to remote work. Some had to close or hibernate through the state of emergency, and some had to stay open to stay afloat. From the earliest days of the pandemic all the way back in March and April of 2020, we saw inequities in remote work. In our surveys at the Massing Polling Group, 44% of people making less than $50,000 a year worked remotely. That's compared to 75% of those who made more than $100,000 a year. Only 40% of hourly workers worked remotely, while 74% of salaried workers did. That included most MITRE employees. In some ways, we're very lucky because we're primarily a knowledge workforce. So we were able to motivate many of our employees to start working remotely early. Um, Who could go remote depended in part on the nature of the work itself. If your business is food service, sure, you can deliver a burger to someone's house, but a person still has to make it at the restaurant. Yahaira, who has owned her nail salon in Lynn for four years, points out that remote work in cosmetology was not only technically difficult, it would have been a major risk for workers. You can't work remotely because if you work from home or if you work from uh, any space, you need a permit from the city that you live in. And I don't believe that the city of Peabody, Lynn, Salem or any vicinity would allow you to work from home um, as, a, as a nail salon because you need to go to the state of Massachusetts for the, um, the, the Board of Cosmetology and they need to give you a permit for that as well. So working from home was a big risk because you could lose your license, you could lose your business, you could get a fine. And that was the trade-off. If you wanted to stay open, you needed to do it on-site or have a workforce that could be remote. Beckma was working to help their businesses figure out funding, not just for basic rent and utilities, but also for personal protective equipment, or PPE, when it was locally scarce while the states jockeyed with the federal government for supplies. So we got these frantic calls from folks saying, we, we can't get into PPE. Uh, and and we are, we're scared to stay open, but we also you know, uh, know that if we close our doors for a day or two, that's it, and we'll have to close up shop. So folks were caught you know, in this uh, uh, catch-22. So what's ahead for these in-person businesses, many of whom are still reeling from the losses brought on by COVID? What help did these businesses get over the past year, and what do they still need? That's after the break. 
Today's episode of Mass Reboot is sponsored by our good friends at Rasky Partners. They're a longtime supporter of ours and a nationally recognized government affairs and communications firm. For over 30 years, the team at Rasky has worked with all types of organizations, large and small, helping each one reach their business objectives through advocacy and storytelling. Find out more at rasky.com. That's R-A-S-K-Y.com. Business owners like Yahira faced the harshest impacts from the earliest days of the pandemic. Government aid packages, though historic in size, didn't reach everyone. The businesses who slipped through the cracks were often the ones that needed the help the most. Shigun says this moment shined a spotlight on a deep-rooted friction the Black business community dealt with for decades. The Paycheck Protection Program uh, that was, uh, you know, came under the CARES Act in March of 2020, um, you know, kind of revealed for everybody uh, the lack of relationships that Black businesses had with uh, traditional banks. Um, And, uh, you know, so, you know, it it was for two reasons. One was because uh, folks didn't trust banks because they remembered 2008 uh, and the crash and the fact that, uh, you know, that happened due to predatory lending. And or the other part was, uh, you know, just racist lending practices where we don't get loans. Um, you know, 30 percent of us on average receive a loan compared to 70 percent of white um, uh, entrepreneurs and, and homeowners. Similar divides showed up clearly in our polling in June and July of 2020. The smallest businesses and businesses owned by women and people of color were less likely to apply for PPP and also less likely to be approved if they did apply. Over 80% of small businesses with over $250,000 in revenue applied for PPP loans, and the vast majority of those were approved quickly and for the full amount. Among the smallest businesses, less than half applied, and approval was anything but automatic. Meanwhile, attempts made at the state level weren't much better in early days. The state established a small business recovery loan fund through the Massachusetts Growth Capital Corporation. It set up $10 million for struggling small businesses. And within 24 hours, they had 2,000 applications showing a need for $135 million. Uh, and we know that the, you know, most of the people who applied for that, if any, were, uh, were Black. Because in order to have applied for that program, you have to, someone has to let you know. No one is sitting on mass.gov refreshing it every day, trying to see what's going on in state government. And so uh, because the word did not reach us as quickly as uh, other communities received word, uh, they were first in line, they got that money, and our businesses had nothing. Shagun and other advocates called on the state to put up more funds quickly, but state leaders didn't act with the level of urgency he'd hoped for. Uh, They preferred to wait for the feds to get their act together, and so a lot of our businesses uh, just, you know, could not survive uh, the summer or early fall. Uh, And, you know, there were different cities uh, in Massachusetts that stepped in, Massachusetts, Malden, uh, Worcester, uh, a couple other places that stepped in with these small grant programs. Um, But we just needed more. There were several other state relief packages throughout the year. And after the federal government did act, announcing a massive COVID relief bill, the state put out a much bigger aid package in December. The $668 million relief program gave priority to small businesses hit hardest during the pandemic. In a chaotic time, business owners tried to navigate the many systems the best they could. And there were various lifelines available if you could figure out how to grab them. 
Yahira got a partial SBA loan, but really the thing that helped her salon make it through 2020 and the first part of 2021 were two grants from the city of Lynn itself. It was able to keep us afloat through um, being able to buy supplies, being able to take care of um, the rent, the utilities, it helped with the payment for um, one staff member who's a W-2 staff. We were able to do some promotions on Instagram and on Facebook. So uh, we utilized those grants wisely. We didn't want to spend all of it at one time or use it for like renovations and stuff because I wasn't sure if I would be able to keep my hourly employee if I didn't have enough income coming in through the door. Shagun says funding remains a necessity even now. In-person businesses like retail shops and restaurants are seeing more customer traffic than during the pandemic. But for many, their finances are nowhere near secure. And we need to, you know, put out another series of grants to keep folks uh, floating until we actually beat this thing. Because, you know, uh, uh, consumer confidence is going to plummet again. And because, like I said before, 50 percent of our businesses are in these industries that require in-person contact. Folks are not want to go, you know, they're not going to want to go back outside for a long time uh, if we see another wave of COVID wash over our communities, and we will not survive that. Our, our restaurants, uh, our retail stores are already uh, on just ha- literally a hair uh, away from having to just close their doors for good uh, at very high numbers. Shigun is keeping a watchful eye on the arrival of the Delta variant and the uptick in COVID cases. If trends continue upward, that spells danger for many businesses, but especially for small and minority-owned ones. Now we see and hear, well, we're going to have to reinstitute the mask mandate because a new variant of the uh, virus is here, and it's even impacting people who already got the vaccine. And and what we were what we said then was this is this is the nightmare scenario, not just for. Uh, uh, our community uh, being infected and, and dying at higher rates again, uh, but the fact that our businesses cannot stand uh, or survive a second wave of closures. It puts small businesses in a tough spot. They generally don't have access to funding to close down again if they don't feel safe enough to stay open. Yahira says her staff is fully masked, with plexiglass up between the technicians and the clients, and they can only take clients by appointment to manage their reduced capacity in staff. And she wants people to remember the pandemic isn't over. I feel like we're being negligent um, because, you know, it's still around. It still exists. So only because they opened up and got rid of the capacities doesn't mean that it doesn't exist any longer. Um, We're still smack in the middle of it. Even before the more contagious Delta variant started sweeping the country and the world, Shagun and Bekma were wary about the rush to reopen. We may have been the only business organization that was against reopening. Because even though the state was applauding itself for hitting 60-70% of folks getting vaccinated, the number was 30% in the Black community. And so... It's like, you know, let's let's slow down here because, you know, optics matter and, and messaging matters. And if you if you just say, OK, we're back at 100 percent reopening, you're essentially saying COVID is gone. I mean, and so and people were already fighting the mask mandates and uh, and not taking uh, the virus seriously, despite 
you know, the, the high levels of infection and death. Um, and so to then just say, you know, everything's good now, we can take off the masks and, you know, fill up our uh, businesses at 100%, completely wrong message. We've been in stage the new normal since March of this year. Now, cases are perceptibly rising in the state. There are more new confirmed daily cases than we saw this time last year, according to state metrics. The CDC has issued new guidance that people in areas with high or substantial risk of transmission return to wearing masks indoors, regardless of vaccination status. Here in Massachusetts, that includes Suffolk, Bristol, and Barnstable counties, along with Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. You might recall from our episode last week that the restaurant industry had been banking on this fall as the first real trial for what the new normal might look like. But another surge could throw that all off. The onslaught of the Delta variant also has large employers reconsidering their future. For them, the decision is more related to how much longer to keep their employees fully remote. Several large Boston-based employers considered early September their benchmark to begin more in-person work. So there are some, you know, there are companies you've been reading in the paper lately. Uh, John Hancock, I think, is talking about January. Eastern Bank had been talking about November. Um, and there are some that are just, are just, we're just waiting it out. I think this, in some way, validates those decisions, right? Let's see what, how this is all going to work. Um, in terms of those who are full speed ahead for September, this is definitely weighing on their um, on their minds. I know they're all tracking the data. It's probably going to impact their um, vaccination policies, which still are being developed. But there is a lot of attention being paid to um, the Delta variant and the impact. Absolutely. Now with cases on the rise again. Workers and their employers want to be sure people working in close proximity are vaccinated. Many colleges and universities, private employers, some city and state governments, and most recently, VA hospitals have all been rolling out mandates. News reports suggest a broader federal employee mandate may be on the way, too. In a statewide poll we at the Massing Polling Group conducted this month, 75% of Massachusetts workers said they would support their employer requiring a vaccination for anyone working in person. This includes majorities in every demographic group and across party lines. It also includes two-thirds of Massachusetts Republicans who support a vaccine mandate from their employers. Regardless of when in-person work picks up again, all indications from surveys and employer comments suggest there will be less of it than ever before. Offices are taking different actions to account for fewer people in person at once. So MITRE, for example, has been using hybrid arrangements since the beginning of the pandemic, and they plan to expand them as time goes on. Those people are now going to have reservable offices, whereas prior they may have had an assigned workspace. Uh, we did that in order to ensure the safety of our employees during COVID and allow for people to have private designated workspace when they come on campus if they so choose, so that they may not have to share an office uh, with two or three others where they may have done that in the past. Their meetings right now are a pretty good example of what we can expect other workplace meetings to look like. Some people live in person, others remote, and more reliance on tech to connect us than before the pandemic. Hybrid meetings are uh, becoming the norm here now. We are almost always having a virtual component to an in-person meeting. Our in-person meetings are typically still fairly small. 
Uh, we we have lifted a lot of the restrictions on meeting meeting size, but uh, our employees are choosing to mostly do smaller meetings in person on our campuses right now. Those meetings, we are uh, equipped in most of our conference rooms with Microsoft Teams in the rooms. So we're using- Writer's been doing this for a while, but even they are still working out the kinks, which are bound to crop up for everyone as we adjust to whatever a new normal looks like. We've gotten used to Zoom meetings, sure. But what about Zoom meetings where some participants are in a conference room and others are in their living rooms? I, I will say it's uh, a learning experience for all of us. We're, we're still struggling in a lot of ways to figure out what's the proper dynamic. Are you, does everyone bring their device and turn their cameras on so you can see everyone individually in a meeting room? Do you uh, use the cameras that are already in our conference rooms and um, have people who are remote on the big screen? We're, we're still wrestling through a lot of that, but... Um, I think we're doing it with the right intent, which is just make sure it works for everybody, make sure everyone is an equal participant in the meeting and has an ability to speak up. With fewer workers in the office at the same time, some employers are rethinking their space needs. Megan says MITRE is pausing expansion plans and optimizing how they use their current space. JD sees that trend among members of the Massachusetts Business Roundtable as well. So 38% of our members plan to reduce their real estate footprint. It's not because they're reducing headcount. It's because the number of people who will be in the office at any given time is being reduced. Um, Similarly, 65% said they're reducing office density and 50% said they're reducing individual workstations. So what happens to all that extra space? That's an open question with big implications for the region. One solution some are looking at is turning some newly vacant office space into labs. Boston has booming life sciences and high-tech sectors. What I keep hearing over and over and over again, in fact, we brought this up to one of our members, and they said to me, I have two words for you, lab conversion. And what's happening is a lot of this space is being converted to lab space. So with less office space available and fewer workers in the office on any given day, Where will they all be when the morning meetings begin? When the pandemic opened the opportunity to work from anywhere, some employees got out of the state entirely. So the number of employees affiliated with Massachusetts-based operations working outside of Massachusetts was 5% prior to COVID. During COVID, it quadrupled to over 20%, to 21%. This begs the question, if some portion of the workforce really can work from anywhere, Will we see a larger migration of workers out of Massachusetts and into other states with warmer climates and lower costs of living? J.D.'s members are expecting more of this than before the pandemic. Post-pandemic, the expectation is that that figure stays at around 15 percent. And so for us, we look at that and we say, okay, that's a tripling of the number of um, the percentage of the Massachusetts workforce we're working from out of state which implies to me a comfort level on behalf of employers with that work model. A shift of this size would have big impacts. But while more employees may log in from elsewhere, J.D. says their offices are staying in Massachusetts. The second data point is we asked our members, now that we know that there's this increased mobility, are you considering, you as a company, considering leaving Massachusetts? And 88% said no. They said we plan to stay maybe relocate here, grow here, but we plan to stay here. 
work has shown up in every episode we've done so far. It influences where people can live and how they get around. Housing pressures push and pull people across the state, and homeownership prices are soaring. As for transportation, car traffic is back. MBTA ridership is not. With more hybrid work, that could keep it depressed for the foreseeable future, particularly on the commuter rail. Bottom line, Massachusetts is looking at dramatic changes. A big chunk of our workforce appears set to remain at least partially remote for the foreseeable future. Business travel is going to be way, way down. Service businesses count on predictable swells of office workers crowding into certain parts of the state at certain times, pretty much every workday. Change those patterns and the impacts on service businesses and their workers will be severe. That's it for this week's episode of Mass Reboot. Next time, we're exploring the pandemic's jarring impact on school. How did students, teachers, parents, and administrators adjust to a year unlike any other? And what's on the horizon for the upcoming academic year? Join us next week for Episode 6, School. Mass Reboot is a production of the Mass Inc. Polling Group in collaboration with Commonwealth Magazine. It's produced by Steve Cazella, Jennifer Smith, and me, Libby Gormley. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. To lend your support and help us make more episodes of Mass Reboot, donate at patreon.com slash mass underscore reboot. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.